Today I'm speaking with Robert Sapolsky. Robert is a neuroendocrinologist and a primatologist. He's a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University and the recipient of a MacArthur so-called genius grant. I don't know if that's the official title of that grant. Does one have to say so-called there? In any case, Robert really is a superstar professor and communicator of science, as well as a top-flight scientist. And as I say in the beginning, I remember being in a class at Stanford when he came in as a guest lecturer, and I recall that being one of the moments that nudged me toward doing my PhD in neuroscience rather than philosophy. I've been wanting to speak to Robert for quite some time. He's actually been one of my most frequently requested guests. In this episode, we discuss his new book, Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst, which I highly recommend. It really is the most accessible discussion of brain science you will find. And for those of you who want more talk about free will, and about the fact that the concept doesn't make much sense, uh, and about why that matters, we get into that at the end. And now, without further delay, I bring you Robert Sapolsky. I am here with Robert Sapolsky. Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Glad to be here. As uh, you and I know, but our listeners don't, we have been fighting our robot overlords to get a clear connection <laughs> here. Now, uh, with two attempts, and I, I think we've got it, but as I've said, if, if this glitches on us, I will get on a plane and, and come and interview you because we have a lot to talk about. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for persisting here. I'm trying to check my memory here. I don't think you and I have ever met. We, we're in very much similar circles, but I recall actually when I was at Stanford, I was in a class with John Gabrielli, I think on the neuroanatomy of memory, sure. and you were brought in as a guest lecturer. And then, so that was my first exposure to you and, and really a fairly early exposure to what is interesting about brain science. You gave this very cool interdisciplinary talk because you are both a neurobiologist and a primatologist. And, and just uh, you should know that you standing in front of a class of undergraduates for the better part of an hour got into my brain and inspired me uh, in part to go the direction I did. So thank you for that. Well, thanks. That's, <laughs> that's really good to hear. So you've written this book, Behave, which is just this monumental tour of the human brain and behavior, and we will cover some of it. We, will, we definitely will not exhaust what is interesting in that book. But what you did here is, you know, as I know all too well, it's really hard to write about the brain in a way that's accessible because it's not so much that the concepts are so hard, but once you get in the, into the details and you start naming parts, it just becomes this thicket of neuroanatomical terms and people totally lose the plot. You really do a fantastic job in this book of giving scientific detail in a way that is not at all boring and really quite accessible. And it's, honestly, this is not something I have managed to do in my books. And that's why when I bring in the relevant neuroscience, I kind of get in and get out as quickly as possible because it makes for brutal reading. But you have, you've struck a, a wonderful balance here. So more praise to you. Well, thanks. I, I have had to survive neuroanatomy classes, so I know exactly how awful all the multisyllabic names can be. So um, <laughs> I'm still traumatized myself. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk from, before we get into your book, 
just about your background here and the way in which you've married what, what is essentially neuroendocrinology and primatology, so, which is a fairly unique combination. I can't imagine there are too many of, of you at meetings with the same bio. How has primatology informed your study of the brain? And if I'm not mistaken, you focus exclusively on baboons, right? So how, how has the, yeah. the picking of baboons been relevant here? Well, sort of the common theme in my work has been to understand uh, the effects of stress on health, in particular, the effects of stress on the brain. And what do you know, the punchline for all of that is uh, stress can do some pretty lousy things to the brain. Um, what I've spent many decades doing is, as you say, sort of oscillating between being a lab scientist, growing neurons in petri dishes, mucking around with their genes and such. Um, and then for 32 summers, uh, picking up and going to a national park in East Africa and studying baboons there. Um, and these are the same animals I return to each year, um, animals I can dart, can anesthetize, and when they're unconscious, do a whole bunch of like basic sort of clinical tests you would do in a human. Um, in terms of balancing the two, they've always kind of complemented each other in that you observe something or other interesting about the brain based on your petri dish neurons or your lab rats. And that's great. But the question, of course, is whether this like actually tells us anything about the real world. Let's go study a primate in its natural habitat. And then you see something interesting behaviorally uh, with these wild primates. And you say, geez, I wonder like if it's this part of the brain or what's going on there. And Thus, you go back to the lab and your cultured neurons. So it's, it's been sort of a, a very privileged uh, ability to do these sort of complementary approaches. Mm. I'm now picturing you darting these baboons. Do you do it yourself? Do you actually fire the gun? Um, it's a blowgun. Um, it takes surprisingly little practice. Um, fortunately, baboons have very large rear ends, which is what you aim for. Um, and you know, I'm your I'm, I'm beyond cliched as like your nice liberal, and so the ability to like sort of sneak around the bush with a blowgun and shoot at wild baboons and That's like awesome. do that it's great. It's like <laughs> and and you're doing conservation work the whole time, so it's uh, yeah, it's a blast. I love doing it. Now, do the baboons? recognize you enough to and recognize what you're doing enough or the consequences of your darting to form a grievance against you darting them? Um, not if things go well. I mean, sort of 90% of the time out there, uh, you're collecting behavioral data, which is your basic Jane Goodall sort of scene where you're just hanging with them from, from dawn till dusk. And there's sort of a whole science about doing it in a quantitative, objective kind of way. Um, so it's actually an infrequent day where I'm out darting. But one of the things um, that actually makes it quite difficult is you can't dart somebody until there's nobody else around and nobody looking and he's turned the other way. You dart him and he responds as if he's been stung by a bee or has sat on a thorn, uh, jumps up, scratches his rear for a second, sits back down, and then three minutes later he's unconscious. So you get one alone and and when he's unconscious you can approach him and and no one else intervenes in, from the troop or or notices what you're doing at that point 
Well, that's when it all goes perfectly smoothly. When it doesn't, he decides to pick up in those three minutes before going under and walk over and sit down right in the middle of a gazillion other baboons or get into a fight with somebody. And those are the, <laughs> those are the ones that don't go so well. What are you doing to the reputations of these baboons that walk among their troop and, and start a fight and then promptly faint from your anesthesia? <laughs> well, it's, um, it's got to cause all sorts of interesting <laughs> belief systems in these animals that I can't quite access. Uh, that's funny. Now, are there disanalogies between baboons and humans that are of interest here? Because they're further from us than chimps. So are there, are there ways in which chimps are similar to humans and, and baboons aren't? And, and if so, why the choice to study baboons? Um, chimps would be much better insofar as, you know, the cliche, uh, they share and do share 98% of our genome with us, uh, far closer in terms of social structure, in terms of cognitive, emotional capacities, all of that. Nonetheless, uh, baboons still count as close relatives. And I think we 96% share DNA. For a bunch of reasons, baboons are perfect for what I do. Um, they live out in the open in these big open grasslands. So you can see them 12 hours a day and you can actually like see them to dart them. They, they don't live up in trees. They're not endangered. They're, they're big. They've got lots of blood that you could borrow from them for your, uh, sort of tests. Um, but probably most of all, given that I study stress, none of us are getting stressed because we're like riddled with, with, you know, diphtheria or some horrible chronic illness. None of us are getting stressed because we're chased by saber-toothed tigers every day. Instead, we're westernized humans, which is to say we get chronic psychosocial stress. And it turns out baboons are absolutely perfect for this. They live in these large troops, 50 to 100 animals. Um, the Serengeti, where they live, is like a perfect ecosystem. Predators don't hassle them much. And they only have to work about three hours a day for their calories. And what that means is you've got nine hours of free time every day to devote to making some other baboon miserable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all, all they do is generate social stress for each other. They're perfect models for westernized humans. Now, what about mandrills? They, they, they look like baboons, but they're not baboons, right? Am I, am I right about that? Oh, there's some major taxonomic civil war going on about that as to whether they're they are a baboon type. I've, I've steered clear of that one because I'm, I'm fairly uh, uncommitted to it. But they're different social system. They live in dense rainforests. They would be mighty hard to study. These savanna baboons that I focus on are, are perfect. So now get into your book, which is really this wonderful tour of the brain and behavior and you know, morally salient behavior. You and I approach these questions from a, a pretty similar angle, and we agree about many things. I'm sure we'll talk about free will at, at one point because many of our listeners want us to, and you are one of the few people who have made more or less the same noises on this topic that I have <laughs> in science. It's, we've, we've broken the same taboo here. That'll be fun to talk about. But to start with where you're, you're coming from, you have a, a kind of unity of knowledge approach, and, and you, you look at the various levels of scientific explanation from neurophysiological and genetic to psychological and cultural. And 
each of these clearly has a different language game associated with it, but you, like, like I, don't make much of the transitions between these levels. But you do something interesting here where you, you find a, a novel way of segmenting these different levels of analysis with respect to time, the, the, kind of the, prox, the proximity to causing human behavior, which is very interesting. So talk about how you break down the levels of scientific explanation sure. in a um, temporal sense. Like as behavioral biologists, which most of us are in some stripe or other, um, a behavior occurs and we are in a sense asking, why did that behavior just happen? And it turns out that's actually asking a whole bunch of questions. Because if you're asking, why did that behavior just happen? Part of it is what occurred in the brain of that individual one second ago. But you're also saying, what were the sensory cues in the environment a minute ago that triggered those neurons? And you're also asking, what did that person's hormone levels this morning over the recent hours or days have to do with making them more or less sensitive to those sensory cues, which then trigger those neurons? And then you're often running to neural plasticity over the course of months, back to childhood, back to fetal environment, which turns out to be phenomenally influential on adult behavior. And then you're back to genes. But then if you're still asking, why did that behavior occur? You're also asking, well, what sort of culture was this person raised in? Which often winds up meaning, what were this person's ancestors doing a couple of hundred years ago? What were the ecological influences on that? And Finally, when you're saying, why did that behavior occur? You're also asking something about the millions of years of evolutionary pressures beforehand. So it's not just the case that, ooh, it's important to remember to look at these things at multiple levels. Exactly as you said, ultimately, they merge into the same. If you're talking about the brain, you're talking about the childhood experiences when the brain was assembled. If you're talking about genes, you're implicitly talking about the evolution of them. All of these just are a confluence of influences on behavior that are all sort of interconnected. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get back to that, precisely that picture when we talk about free will, because obviously there's a lot of confusion about degrees of freedom for the mind when you're talking about the, the neurophysiology of human behavior, or the way in which culture influences brain development. The punchline here, obviously, is that once you grant that the brain is the, the final common pathway of all these influences, when you're talking about human thought and intention and behavior, uh, well, then you have to grant that what the brain is doing is the proximate cause of what the person is doing. And either you're going you're gonna to sign on <laughs> to the yeah. laws of physics here, or you're not. So We'll get, we'll get back to that. But there's a, a common misunderstanding around the relationship between reason and emotion, just across the board, but in particular with respect to human behavior and the answering of moral questions, the way in which we just form a, a worldview. That there's this idea that you can be emotionally motivated or you can be motivated by emotion-free rationality. Let's perform a little psychosurgery on that idea. Well, you, you treat this in your book. How do you think about reason and emotion? Well, it's, it's the inevitable like Coke versus Pepsi dichotomy there. 
and as to which is more important, which influences the other more in terms of our actions. And of course, it turns out, as with most sort of dichotomies with behavior, um, it's a false one. They're utterly intertwined and intertwined on a neurobiological level. You have a thought, you think of something terrifying that happened to you long ago and emotional parts of your brain activate and you secrete stress hormones. Or you have an aroused emotion, you're in an agitated, frightened state, and suddenly you think and reason in a way that's like imprudent and ridiculous. We make terrible decisions often when we're aroused. The two parts are equally intertwined. Probably where the most progress in thinking about this intertwining has come in recent years is you know, there's a certain sort of comfort and I think chauvinism we take as these like creatures with big cortexes and thinking that nonetheless reason is sort of at the core of most of our decision making. And an awful lot of work has shown that far more often than we would like to think, we make our decisions based on implicit emotional automatic reflexes. We make them within milliseconds Parts of the brain that are marinated in emotion and hormones are activating from the standpoint of the brain long, long before the more cortical, rational parts activate. And often what we believe is rational thinking is instead our cognitive selves playing catch up to try to rationalize why our emotional instincts actually are perfectly logical and make wonderful sense. And in lots of ways, the, the best way to show this is you manipulate the affective, the emotional, the automatic, the implicit, the, the subterranean aspects of our brains, where we may not even be aware of it, and it changes our decisions, and then we come up with highfalutin explanations for why it's actually because of some philosopher we read freshman year, that's why I did what I just did. No, actually, it's because of this manipulation that just occurred. Yeah, yeah. So there are really two sides of this. So that's, that's one side, which is kind of deflationary of cognition and reason. So you think you're reasoning and that your reasoning is driving your, your cognition or your belief formation. But then when you look closely, you find that it's being driven from below by emotion. But the flip side of that is that in order to make even the most coolly calculated reasoning effective, it needs to be integrated with parts of the brain, you know, in this case, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, that you need a felt sense of the consequences of being right or wrong. And, and this connects to Damasio's work and others where people who have neurological damage there, they may know the correct strategy, say, in a gambling task. They may understand the probabilities, but they can't make that understanding effective because it doesn't actually mean anything. It's not coded appropriately. Yep. And it turns out this is like a tremendous rebuke for the people out there who would say, if only we could be purely rational creatures, if only we can get rid of all that affective muck from underneath, why we'd all be Mr. Spock and it would be a wondrous world. And exactly as you say, ventromedial prefrontal cortex, work of people like Damasio, people who have damage to this part of the brain that's basically the means by which your emotional parts of the brain talk to your most rational ones and tell them what they're feeling, get damaged there. And people make decisions about things that we view as appalling, as 
beyond the pale of cold-blooded as detached. As, as one example, you take any normal person on earth and you give them sort of a philosophy problem. Would you kill one stranger to save the life of five? And they maybe say yes, maybe say no. And then you say, would you kill your parent, your loved one, to save the life of five? And in half a second, you say, no, of course not. It's my mother. It's my child, whatever. And you take somebody in damage to this part of the brain and they give the exact same answer. It doesn't register. They don't process relatedness in the same way. And every primate on earth would look at that and say there's something desperately wrong with this person's brain. On this issue of emotion and rationality, one point I have begun making, which I haven't heard made, and I just want to bounce it off of you, I've begun to think about doubt, which really is one of the core foundations of our rationality, right? I mean, so you say something which I find implausible, you know, kind of my error detection mechanism, whether it's logical or, or factual or semantic or based on memory, you know, something gets tripped. You say, you, you utter a sentence and I, and I don't buy it. That feeling of doubt, in my view, really is an emotion. And, you know, we actually have some neuroimaging data to back this up in that all the, the fMRI studies I did on belief showed that disbelief, doubting the, the veracity of a proposition, was associated with activity in the anterior insula. And, I, and I've actually begun to think of doubt as a kind of emotion on the continuum of disgust, as kind of propositional disgust or cognitive disgust. And, you know, frankly, when I see our president speak, I find I'm in viscerally in touch with doubt as disgust, right? I mean, like there's a certain level of incredulity in the face of, you know, a, a confident utterance that precipitates in me, at least, a, a fairly strong emotion of disgust. So I just, I want to put those data in, in front of you and just get your take. Well, my, uh, my insular cortex is right with you on that one. <laughs> um, but I, I thoroughly agree with it. Um, obviously, there's some domains where doubt is just a, a purely rational process. You sit there and you add up two and two and somehow it comes out to five. And that's a fairly pure cognitive state of saying, I doubt if that actually is correct. Um, but most of the doubts we have and in our social world, I think you're absolutely right, is steeped in emotion. Emotion discussed perhaps at the person who is sowing that doubt. Um, emotion. Robert, just to clarify, if we put you in a scanner and give you propositions just like that, two plus two equals five, you're six foot five inches tall, you're a woman with blonde hair, George Washington was never president of the United States. I just give you propositional statements which you recognize to be untrue, but which are not, in fact, emotionally laden. I would certainly predict, on the basis of now three neuroimaging studies, that those would be associated with insular activity in you and the same statements in a positive light that you would accept, you know, George Washington was the first president of the United States, wouldn't. I completely agree, because it's very much context dependent. If I were sitting there on my own and adding up two and two and I got five, I would have, you know, a half second's worth of pure rationality. Wait a second, that's not right. And then I would have that's it. I'm an idiot. I'm a, I'm a fake. Everybody else is going to finally figure it out. I can't even add two plus two. 
And sitting there in the brain immature, I think you're absolutely right. That would not be a purely cognitive experience. That would be, what are these guys up to? Do I trust them? Do I feel safe here? Do they think I'm an idiot? What do they think of me? Did I say something foolish before? Are they going to lock me up in the scanner, etc.? And often running with emotional aspects. I think one of the most perfect realms for looking at this is uh, when you look at conformity studies and where people go along with something that is patently untrue, yet they go along. A certain percentage of them are just being affable. They're being publicly conforming, um, but a certain percentage actually change their minds. And you can see activation of the visual cortex. Hey, remember, you actually saw something different than you're saying. You saw what all of them are saying. This is a state that's also associated with activation of the insular cortex, activation of the amygdala. It's anxiety. Doubting provokes anxiety. Certainty is a very comforting thing. And doubting even seemingly the most cerebral and sort of (laughs) soulless of issues out there, nonetheless, readily taps into all these senses of uh, anxiety running underneath there. There's this other piece here, which is that the brain doesn't have, I mean, this is just a, a constraint of evolution. We were not built so as to acquire new cognitive abilities de novo. The only material to use for modern human cognition are these ancient structures that have to be commandeered to to new purposes. So everything we do is built on the back of these apish structures. You know, here we're we're talking about the insula, which does receive the inputs from the, the viscera. You know, you find rotting food disgusting. You know, that is the tale told by the insula. And the only way to build a mind that has the capacity to find abstract ideas repugnant is to be repurposing or extending the purpose of these brain areas that were doing nothing of the kind in apes like ourselves that couldn't form abstract ideas. Absolutely. And it's a totally fascinating domain, the fact that this insular cortex, which if you're a like mole, will tell you if you're eating something rotten, activates in humans thinking about moral disgust, that a part of the brain that does temperature sensing for you is also activated when you're contemplating whether somebody has a warm or cold personality, that the parts of your brain, some parts that are involved in pain detection in a very literal sense, also activate when you're feeling empathic about somebody else's pain. And all of these speak to this sort of old truism about evolution. Evolution is not an inventor. It's a tinkerer. It makes do with what's already there. When, I don't know, when did humans come up with the concept of moral outrage and moral disgust? Maybe in the last 20,000 years, 50,000, whatever. When did we come up with the concept of having warm or cold personalities? A lot shorter than that. And at that point, like nobody sits down and says, okay, we need to evolve an entirely new part of the brain that does moral disgust. They say, insula, I know they do. That kind of sounds the same. They do food disgust. Like here, give me some duct tape. We're just going to like push that into the insula. And now the insula also does metaphorical moral disgust. And it's a brain that's winging it in a lot of ways. 
uh, for some really interesting ways in which it's better and ways in which that's for the worse. When you think about the role of the brain in producing these kinds of purely human-level distinctions, things like the birth of civilization, really, I mean, it's, it's largely a story of what the frontal cortex is doing. I think you say at one point in the book that this region of the brain is what makes you do the hard thing when the hard thing is the right thing to do. Let's talk for a moment about the role of the frontal cortex in our species. That's exactly sort of a summary of what it does. Uh, more jargony, it does impulse control and emotional regulation and long-term planning and gratification, postponement, and executive function. It's the part of the brain that attempts to tell you, you know, this seems like a good idea right now, but trust me, you're going to regret it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Of great importance, it's the most recently evolved part of our brains. Um, our frontal cortex is proportionately bigger and or more complex than in any other primate. And most interestingly, it's the last part of the brain to get fully wired up. I mean, we're accustomed to images of, you know, your brain is pretty much set to go by the time you're at kindergarten. The frontal cortex is not fully online until people are on the average about a quarter century old, which is boggling, which is boggling, but it also tells you a whole lot about why adolescents act in adolescent ways because the frontal cortex isn't very powerful yet. But in that is an incredibly interesting implication, which is if the frontal cortex that does all this complex, like culture specific reasoning and regulating of behavior, if the frontal cortex is the last part of the brain to fully mature, by definition, it's the part of the brain that is least constrained by genes and most shaped by experience. And that's real important. Because think about, I mean, sort of, okay, the frontal cortex, it's your moral barometer, if that's the right metaphor, it's your Calvinist voice whispering in your head. So the frontal cortex, for example, plays a central role if you're tempted to lie about something. And if you manage to avoid that temptation, your frontal cortex had something to do with it. But at the same time, if you do decide to lie, your frontal cortex plays an enormous role in you doing an effective job at lying, because that's a version of frontal regulation also. Okay, control my voice, don't make eye contact, don't let my face do something funny. That's a frontal task also. You know, if you're talking about a part of the brain that is both central to you avoiding lying, but once you've decided to lie, is central to you doing it effectively, this is a very human, very complicated part of our brains. Yeah. And so to follow on what you just said there about the implications of it being so late to develop, I mean, this is really where it matters what culture you're in and what early life experience you have and what, what, what kind of person you become with respect to your beliefs about ethical norms and you know what constitutes honor and Everything that stands out as a, a salient, consequential difference between groups and societies now, none of this is just floating around in the ether. It's not just in the books on our shelves. This is getting etched in the brains of all concerned. And largely, this is a story of what is happening in the, in the frontal cortex. Yep. And 
that's exactly why it can't mature until you're 25. It's not that it's a more complex construction project than wiring up the rest of your brain is. You need the first 25 years to learn your situational ethics and your culture-specific beliefs and that sort of thing. And those are subtle and they're often unstated. And they're often exactly the opposite of what people tell you things are supposed to be about. I mean, think about it. Every culture on earth bans some types of killing and allows others. And they all do different ones. Every culture on earth supports some types of lying and bans others. In our culture, it's okay to lie to grandma to say, ooh, I don't have that toy. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. When you've got the actual toy in your closet. And it's okay for us to lie if somebody says, are you harboring those refugees in your attic? And you say, no, of course not, sir. Of course not, SS officer. You know, that one's okay, but there's other ones we ban. Every culture has prohibitions about sexual behaviors where some types of behaviors are wondrous and others are blasphemous. And they all differ. And that's a lot of subtle stuff to have to master as to what counts as doing the right thing. Although I'm doing my part to not spare grandma the brutal truth about the toy. I'm, <laughs> yes. I, I, that's, that's a meme I'm trying to knock down. I know your, your book lying certainly makes the, the most convincing sort of argument I've seen for it's not okay in any domain. Yeah. Although I, I think there's a, a misunderstanding there. I, I think I saw in a, in a footnote or an endnote you said that I'm against lying in all conceivable circumstances, kind of the, the Kantian view, which is not the case. I actually, if you're at the door with the Nazis and you've got Anne Frank in the attic, then I view lying the way most people do as, as a adequate and even necessary act of self-defense or the defense of others in those cases. I, I really view it as being on a continuum of violence where it's the least violent thing you can do to someone who's no longer behaving as a, a, a rational actor or, or someone whose behavior you can modify with you know, honest speech. Okay, sorry for that misrepresentation. No, nobody was supposed to read the footnotes, so. <laughs> well, Anne Frank is safe in, in, in my attic. <laughs> oh, good. So now, are there primates that show an analogous delay in, in maturation in the frontal cortex, or is that a uniquely human issue? Uh, no, it's primate-wide. It's even rodent-wide. Um, but it's not as dramatic. It's not as delayed. It's not as faced with complex of a task as we do when learning uh, sort of the, the complexities of our frontal dependent prohibitions. But no, we're not the only species that invented the idea that this is a very good part of the brain to make very malleable in the face of experience. We've, we've just got the most dramatic version. There are other interesting bits of neuroanatomy here that that you don't often hear talked about, at least in, in the popular press. There's something called von Economo neurons, which are unique in primates and cetaceans and elephants, I believe. And they're, and they're I think, uniquely in the insula and anterior cingulate, or preferentially there. And they relate to social cognition and self-awareness. Give us a potted <laughs> description of, of what's happening there with um, these neurons. They're very cool. And you study human brains, and one of the first things you have to recognize is we're not humans because we've invented a totally novel type of neurotransmitter or a completely new brand of neuron. It's just that we've got more of them. They're more complexly wired. But then people found this one neuron type that did seem to be unique to humans, these von Economos. Um, they're almost entirely found in 
anterior cingulate insular cortex having to do with empathy and moral disgust and all that cool, interesting stuff. So that's plenty interesting. But as you say, then people looked further and it turns up in other species and all the usual suspects when you're looking for the most complex social worlds. Yeah, other apes, other primates, cetaceans, elephants. And the best guess is that they play a role in some very complex aspects of sociality. Are they mirror neurons? And like, don't get me started on that one. Um, <laughs> but very little reason to think they play the very narrowly documented sense of what these mirror neurons do. That's a whole separate rant. Um, but one of the most interesting things is these are the first neurons that die in a very obscure neurological disease called frontotemporal dementia, and one that predominantly damages the frontal cortex. And the first neurons that go are von Economo neurons. And two interesting things about that, what that tells you is these are really expensive, vulnerable neurons to operate if, there's the if they're the first ones that keel over. But the other thing is, what does the disease look like? Disinhibited, socially inappropriate behavior. And often it's initially viewed as a psychiatric disorder until you realize this is a massive neurological sort of carpet bombing of the front part of your brain. Whatever these neurons are doing, they are very, very much sort of specialized for the most complex social things uh, we fancy species do. Yeah, well, so I think the last stop on our Cook's tour of the brain here, or at least the Cook's tour of the frontal cortex, is the dorsal lateral PFC, which is associated with, with much of what we consider to be higher rationality or executive control. And activity here is able to dampen activity in emotional parts of the brain, like the, the limbic system, for instance, the amygdala in particular, you know, reducing negative affect. It can do this by becoming active in, in a relevant way. And this is something that I think people understand, that if you cognitively reappraise what an experience means. So for instance, you know, you think someone's being rude to you, then you you reconstrue that realizing say that maybe he's just nervous and then that will dampen your your initial negative emotional response to what you perceive to be rudeness. But what's also interesting is that really any use of your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex can dampen negative arousal. I mean, if you just if you're feeling negative emotion and you just put your attention on something else, you just start doing math problems, or you do anything that that requires an alternate form of cognition, that can have a similar effect of of dampening arousal. In thinking about this, it's, it's always interesting to consider how someone like yourself, who spends a lot of time thinking about the the mechanics of emotion and cognition from the, the brain side. Does this ever become relevant to you in your life behaviorally? I mean, do you ever, is there anything that you do differently in your moment to moment experience, given how much time you spend thinking about what's going on under the hood? Um, <laughs> for better or worse, uh, yes. And, and like the same thing has infested my wife, who's a neuropsychologist by training. Uh -oh. and, yeah, exactly. When, when our kids were young, I remember this one day where our four-year-old son had just done something rotten to his two-year-old sister, and we swooped in there and 
we were doing the you're not a bad person but you did a bad thing and wailing on him with that one and why did you do that and and at some point i don't even remember which of us said this one of us would say why are we getting on him so hard here he has like three frontal neurons and the other one's response would be well how else is he going to develop a good frontal cortex so we actually like think that way in my house which is pretty appalling when you think about it Although, sort of something I, I write about in the book where I have the most trouble sort of applying my, my worldview as a mechanistic, reductive, deterministic sort of scientist guy thinking about behavior is, as you say, when it's getting to the realm of free will. Much like you, I don't believe there is free will. I believe free will is what we call the biology that hasn't been discovered yet. Um, but what I find to be a hugely daunting task is how you're supposed to live your life thinking that way. And even me with like, I'm willing to write down and print, there's no free will there's, and here's why, you know, at some critical juncture of some social interaction, I act absolutely as if I believe there's free will. I hear about somebody who's done something jerky and I wish horrible things to them instead of stopping and saying, Oh, no, but think about what happened to them as a second trimester fetus. You know, it's very hard to function with that. I, I, like most people, I hit a wall with that one. It's a whole lot easier to operate with the notion of agency. Well, let's jump in there because this is obviously a hugely consequential issue. Or maybe it's, it's, maybe it's obvious to us. It's not so obvious to most people, I think, that coming to a different conclusion about free will has consequences and and you know I would argue they're they're quite good consequences but let's get there so let's let's just step back and remind people of the problem here because many people don't see it as you know uh, my friend and colleague Dan Dennett doesn't agree with us about uh, how we talk about free will and and many other people who are scientists don't want to make the noises that we're making here so I've done this before on the podcast. I've done it in my book, Free Will. Maybe you should make the case briefly about why this notion of free will is an incoherent idea scientifically. And, and, and you might pull from your book this great description you have of what you call car free will. <laughs> okay. Um, and much of it winds up being most relevant, implicit in that metaphor, um, for criminal justice system, how we judge people harshly. Um, one angle I take in trying to convince people there's no free will is just to look at the sheer number of things influencing our behavior. So you do something aggressive, you do something aggressive, and you're asked why you did it, and you come up with a very rational explanation that's dripping with a sense of agency. And here's just some of the things that influenced how likely you were to do that behavior. If you were sitting in a room with smelly garbage, that made you more likely to do that. If you are male or female and your testosterone levels have been elevated for the last day, that's more likely to have happened. If you've been traumatized five months ago and neurons in your amygdala grew new connections, that's more likely to happen. If as a third trimester fetus, you were exposed to elevated levels of stress hormones from your mom's circulation, that as well. If your ancestors 
were nomadic pastoralists wandering grasslands or deserts with their herds and came up with a culture of honor and you were raised in that, you're more likely to have done that as well. Wait a second. Ecosystems 500 years ago have an influence on, yeah, turns out people's cultures are greatly shaped by that and it greatly shapes how their brains develop. Okay. So if there's that realm of argument, whoa, there's a whole lot more stuff going on under the hood, a whole lot more subterranean influences than one would think. A second style of argument is when you manipulate one of those variables, like take somebody and stick them in a room that smells of rotten garbage and your average person becomes more socially conservative on a questionnaire. And afterward, you would say, that's interesting. Last month, when you filled this out in a room that smelled like petunias, you had this or that attitude, and now you've put it differently. And they'll say, well, this event that happened in like middle, middle Peoria last month has utterly changed my mind. No, it was, a, it was a sensory influence that sensitized your insular neurons. So you can manipulate people on a biologically unappreciated level and change behavior. But probably for me, sort of the most emotionally uh, sort of salient way of getting at the free will issue is to just look historically and look at the stuff that we understand now if we're reasonably educated, reflective, thoughtful people, whatever. We know that epileptic seizures are neurological disorders. They're not because somebody has slept with Satan. We know that certain types of learning disabilities are not children being lazy and unmotivated. It turns out there's cortical malformations. We know that certain times when somebody is completely inappropriate in their behavior, it's because they've got a neurochemical disorder called schizophrenia. Most of us has gotten to, have gotten to the point where free will has been subtracted out of that equation. If you have somebody with treatment-resistant epilepsy, and they have occasional seizures, they can't drive a car. But you don't feel like justice has been served and they're getting their due punishment when their driver's license is inactivated for a while. You say it's not them, it's their disease. There's a biological explanation that sidesteps notions of agency or free will. And at that point, all you have to do is look at how much of this stuff We've learned in the last century, in the last 50 years, in the last 10 years, in the last five years, we never heard of von Economo neurons more than 20 years ago. We never heard that oxytocin does this or that to trust more than umpteen. And either you've got to conclude, that's it, tonight at midnight, we're never going to get a new scientific fact again, or you're going to conclude that the march of science is going to continue exactly as is, and the number of ways in which we say, oh, it's not him, it's his brain, it's this weird quirk of it, um, it's just going to grow more and more until we're not talking about them and their diseases or them and their weird quirks, but we're talking about every one of our individualities and their biological ones. And when it's in the realm of inappropriate human behavior, criminal activity, somebody does something violent, you know, that's a biological phenomenon. That's not to say you don't do anything where you forgive everything. Forgive is an irrelevant word. If a car's brakes are faulty, you don't let it out on the street. It's going to kill somebody. You fix them if you can. And if you can't fix them, 
You put the, the car in a garage for the rest of time, but no one would sit there and say the car has a rotten soul or it's deserving the punishment by putting in seclusion in the garage there. It's a mechanical problem. And if somebody says, wow, that's so dehumanizing to view us as just biological machines, that's a hell of a lot better than sermonizing us into having bad souls. Perhaps we should talk about Charles Whitman here because he really brings home the point. So this is something that is a case I've written about. Many people have written about Charles in the, in the context of discussing these issues and, and as you do in the book. So you know, Whitman committed one of the worst mass murders in U.S. history. This was in 1966. And he started by killing his mother and his wife, I think by stabbing each of them in the heart. And then the next morning, he climbed a tower at the University of Texas and with a small arsenal, spent about two hours shooting people at random. And he killed, I think it was 14 and wounded something like 32. Uh, until he was finally shot by police. So given those facts, Whitman just appears to be the quintessence of human evil, except he left a suicide note, and or you know what amounted to a suicide note, where he was complaining about his emotional life prior to these events and how he found his behavior totally inexplicable. I mean, he, he loved his wife and his mother. He had been flooded by irrational thoughts and violent impulses, and he found he couldn't resist them, and I mean, he had terrible headaches, and, he, and you know, he had other symptoms, and then he, he actually recommended that his own brain be autopsied so that doctors could figure out what is wrong with him. And you know, lo and behold, upon his death, his brain was autopsied, and they found a large tumor in his hypothalamus that was pressing on his amygdala, and as you and I both know, this is a, a certainly a plausible place for a tumor to be pressing to drive this symptomology. So when, when that's discovered, this understanding of, of a purely neuroanatomical, neurophysiological causal influence becomes exculpatory. He, we, don't, we don't view Whitman as one of the most evil people in human history. We view him as a victim of biology, really. I mean, this is an unlucky person. And if you had a glioblastoma pressing against your amygdala 24 hours a day, who knows what you would be up to? And everyone feels this. And my argument has been for years now that really a, a brain tumor is just a coarse-grained example of clear causality. And to understand something like psychopathy perfectly at the level of the brain. It just, you know, if, if we could have a perfectly fine-grained account of what's happening at every synapse in the average psychopath's brain, causing him to be a psychopath and not Gandhi, well, then that understanding too would be just like Whitman's brain tumor. It would be exculpatory. We would view psychopaths as unlucky. And however they got that way, whether it's the influence of culture or the parents they didn't pick, or the genes they got mutated, we would, again, we would warehouse them in prison if we had no cure. But if we had a cure, if there was a, a pill you could give someone that would make them no longer a psychopath, it would be absolutely perverse to withhold that treatment in a vengeful way as a, that somehow they're just desserts for, for having been a psychopath. You know, it would be like, it would be like not performing neurosurgery on someone with a brain tumor that's making him violent. So, 
you and I are on the same page there with respect to understanding, really removing the logic of hating people and and justifying retributive or the retributive impulse to punish them. But as you said initially, it's never a question of just letting dangerous people roam the streets. I mean, obviously, if the way I make this point is that you know, we would we would lock up hurricanes and put them in prison if we could, right? I mean, we, without any illusion that they have free will motivating their destructive behavior. I, I think you and I differ a little bit in how we feel we can live with the consequences of this insight, because I'm like you in that I'm often taken in by the illusion of agency. I feel a response to bad actions in the world that really only makes sense if I'm viewing people as, as real agents, as, as the authors of their actions. And there's, there's kind of a gray area here, which I, you know, I haven't thought a lot about, but which I think can kind of finesse this, this gulf between what is clearly our belief about the origins of human behavior and the social and moral responses we have to bad actors in the world. Take someone who is behaving badly and you have the sense that they should do otherwise. Now, given what we've just said, we know that every person is, is essentially a force of nature, and you know, that we, what, you're just, what you're seeing is, in that corner of the universe, the laws of physics are playing out perfectly lawfully, you know, whether it's purely deterministic or there's an added factor of randomness, doesn't matter, that still gives you no basis for free will. So every, every person is, is a a puppet that didn't pick his own strings, uh, and the strings reach back to the Big Bang, one thing that people do have rather often is the ability to have their behavior modified by things we say and do, you know, reasons, for instance. So if you have someone who is not being responsive to rationality, yes, it's true that they're not the authors of themselves. They're not deeply responsible for how they got that way. But it seems appropriate to be in that discovery process. You know, you're, you're trying to reason with someone and they're still an asshole. That discovery process is appropriately fraught with frustration as you're trying to negotiate or navigate or as you're coming to understand that you're in the presence of a malfunctioning robot or you know, a robot that doesn't function the way good robots should, which is you say something sensible and, the, and they accept it. So I feel like there's, it's not so much that we need view ourselves as, as living in denial of what we know to be true about people. It's just that there's always this discovery process. You're doing something that I want to discourage, and I know that you as another primate like myself are susceptible to being influenced by disincentives or punishments in the extreme case, and it becomes totally rational to invoke all that without ever really attributing contracausal free will to you. I completely agree. Um, whether Eric Kandel's classic work with aplesia, a sea slug, all the way up to us, nervous systems can be conditioned with positive reinforcement, with negative reinforcement. Um, people understand that down to the molecular level. Yeah, nervous systems can be changed by input. They abundantly are. And some of the time that will take the form of what we might more absently call punishment. Um, 
But in those cases, that may be necessary to change somebody's behavior. I mean, if a child gets a timeout for doing something rotten to some other kid, um, the adverse state of having the timeout is going to do things to their frontal cortical neurons, and they're going to thus strengthen the synapses that tell them not to do that the next time. And it's a whole mechanistic thing. And nonetheless, that was punitive. What we need to be able to do is use punishment instrumentally when we know it will accomplish something uh, within a biological framework, but don't stand there and preach at the time you're doing it and don't take you know pleasure from a sense of justice being served. The wrinkle here is that the pleasure of justice and even a, a lust for vengeance runs so deep in us. And I, I'm struck by this story that I, I've, I believe I've spoken about on the podcast before, but it's just such a good example of this. You must know Jared Diamond. We're, we're in similar circles. Did you ever read his piece in The New Yorker where he talked about his father-in-law's experience as a Holocaust survivor? No, no. And I, I could be getting some of the superficial details here wrong. It's, a, it's been a while since I've read it, but it's, the gist is, is certainly correct. His father-in-law was a Holocaust survivor and was sent to Auschwitz or Treblinka or someplace horrible. And when he returned to his village, I think it was, I think he was from Poland, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the war, he found the person responsible for having turned in his entire family. And I think this person actually was part of the the gang that actually either murdered some of his family on the spot or sent all of them to a death camp. But in any case, there was, there was one person who was truly culpable for this mob-like behavior that was visited upon his family. And so he found this person after the war and was, as you might imagine, really tempted to enact vengeance himself. But, you know, his frontal cortex came online and he decided, you know, that this is the only path forward to heal his society was to uh, turn this person over to the, the authorities and see that justice is done. So he did that. And, you know, because of either the lingering anti-Semitism of, you know, even those who had survived the dawn of the Thousand-Year Reich in Poland or just some other incompetence, you know, this person was put in jail for like, you know, a month, you know, got a slap on the wrist and then went on to live a, a happy and satisfied life. And Jared's father-in-law was racked by guilt for the rest of his life that he had not satisfied his urge for vengeance here. I mean, so in, in a way that, and again, the, the, the attribution of free will here is the, I would argue, the, the, the psychological and moral underpinning here is the, the illusion of free will. Is. So because if, if his family had been eaten by a bear, you know, he would not have spent the rest of his life ruining the fact that he couldn't have killed that bear with his own hands. Or if his family had been killed by cholera, we're talking about a man who for 60-some-odd years woke up in the middle of the night thinking about this one thing, right? Yeah, this would not would not happen, but you put a person in the dock, a person who should have done otherwise, a person who you could have killed with your own hands. The illusion here is so compelling for people, and people argue, I think, or at least feel that the criminal justice system needs to cater to this in some way, that, that justice isn't satisfying 
if we medicalize human evil and say that basically everyone is not guilty by reason of insanity and we're just going to cure or warehouse those who we can't cure. So what do you do with that? I, I, how do you think about the, the moral improvement of our species in light of the fact that so many people find retribution and even vengeance morally compelling and, and in some cases psychologically necessary? Um, obviously, very powerful, challenging stuff. Um, neurobiologically, revenge, justice is pleasurable. It activates mesolimbic dopamine systems. It, it feels good. Evolutionarily, it has a logic to it, which is when you get third-party punishment uh, rather than the person who has been wronged in an economic game being able to take some sort of revenge, third party being able to do so. It's costly. It costs to have a police department. It costs to have judges. It costs to have somebody putting the effort into that in even a simple economic game. There has to have evolved a certain pleasure, a certain reward in having done the right punitive thing. And it's an enormously powerful thing. But in the face of that, once again, take a historical perspective. There was a time when society's worst people would have been set upon by a mob and slowly beaten to death. And at some point, governmental authority said, yes, 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 I know that's pleasurable. But from now on, instead, you have to turn the person over to us so that we could do it. Then we'll beat them to death. And people had to adjust to that. And then at some later point, people would come to that and they would then say, yes, it's true, but we're now transitioning to, we're going to do something more humane. We're going to hang people. Yes, you could come and see it and bring your picnic baskets. We're going to have a public hanging, but you're just going to have to get your pleasures elsewhere than thinking about the person being slowly beaten to death. And people adjusted to that. And then you don't have crowds at executions anymore. And then we have people designing machines that do more lethal. And at every step of the way, what essentially has been said Yes, 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 you get a certain visceral, febrile sense of pleasurable vengeance in getting to do it this way. Here's the reasons why we're not doing that anymore, and you're going to have to get used to it. And people have gotten used to it at each one of those steps. Um, people will have to get used to their notions that a damaging act by a human is, again, like a bear, like a hurricane. We're able to do that. When it is absolutely clear it was unintentional on the person's part, it was purely accidental, and they're crippled with remorse, we're capable of doing that. We simply will have to expand that further. And at any given point where the line is currently drawn, it seems inconceivable. My God, if somebody did that to my loved ones, and they got to spend the rest of their life enjoying three meals a day and the smell of new flowers or who knows what. That would just consume me. At each one of those, there's a cultural shift as to what things, nonetheless, we don't do anymore. And it's just going to keep happening. I fully agree. I think I, I heard you on a Radiolab episode where you were brought in to talk about a specific case where I believe the person had epilepsy and had a, a resection a surgical treatment for it, and it essentially gave him Kluver-Busey syndrome, which you could describe, 
But the, the consequence was that a seemingly psychologically normal person, uh, or who had been normal up until that moment, suddenly got really into child pornography and then got prosecuted on child porn charges. And the judge sort of split the difference in sentencing between the fully draconian penalty that you would give to the, the ordinary consumer of child pornography and letting him off as, as somebody who had a, a neurological disorder. And it was something like, uh, yeah, I could be a little off here, but something like eight years in prison. I mean, it's not, not at all trivial. And the person himself and his wife and even the producers of the segment seemed to all judge this to be more or less the right thing. I mean, kind of the wisdom of Solomon had been achieved here. Uh, and, you, and you were just horrified. <laughs> do, do you remember that case? Oh, yes. It was a very fun taping arguing about that one with the radio lab guys. Yeah, I was horrified. Um, the crux of it was that, okay, um, after damage to this part of the brain, he had uh, this classic Kluver-Busey syndrome that was first described in, I believe, the 1930s, um, when that part of the brain was damaged in monkeys. And you would see inappropriate sexual behavior afterward, hypersexuality. You would see hyperphagia, animals ate compulsively. You would see inappropriate aggression. Okay, so we just learned something about what that part of the brain does. Okay, so this guy is surgically damaged in that part of the brain to control the seizures. And he got obsessive eating afterward, all sorts of other perseverative behaviors. And he got this strange, utterly abnormal hypersexuality in terms of child pornography. Okay, so it's due to his brain damage. But the critical thing, the crux of the whole issue was he spent his nights up filling his computer with this obsessively hours after hours. And amid that, despite that, he never once downloaded a picture of child pornography on his work computer. Aha, concluded the judge. Yes, the brain damage has something to do with why this person suddenly started manifesting this completely bizarre, criminal, unprecedented behavior. But the fact that he was able to nonetheless suppress that behavior at work shows that there's still some free will there. And thus, given that there's evidence of free will, let's split the difference and you'll get half the jail time uh, that the prosecutors recommended. And the crux of it there was this notion that if at eight in the morning you were able to prevent yourself from doing some behavior, but at eight at night you can't, that's evidence of free will. Whereas all that is is evidence that the biology works differently under different circumstances. Somebody with Tourette's syndrome, where you get compulsive ticking, compulsive scatology, cursing, all sorts of inappropriate gestures and stuff. And people with milder cases of Tourette's are able to suppress it. They suppress it during work throughout the day. And by five o'clock when they step outside, they have an explosion of Touretting and ticks and such. Does that mean that it's less of a neurological disorder than if somebody had the Tourette's throughout the day. No, it just tells you something about the wiring of how much their frontal cortex could regulate some of their involuntary sounds. Um, in the same way, you get somebody with moderate dementia, and in the morning, they can tell you their name and what century it is. And at the end of the day, you get what's called a sundowner syndrome, 
and their cognition is vastly worse and they have no idea who they are and where they are. And the next morning, their cognition, ooh, does that mean that they are some of the time choosing not to remember their name and at other times they're perfectly able to? No, it means the brain metabolism, the energetics of the brain, the brain's more tired at the end of the day and a damaged brain has even more stuff going wrong at that point. Endless examples of that where all it tells you is the biology is context dependent and that there was no less biology occurring in this guy at work than the rest of the time. And it's not as if he had a magical little man and his head a homunculus who got it together to do the right thing at work and then just decided, screw it, the rest of the time. It's all biological. It was no less of a biological phenomenon than if he were doing it 24-7. Yeah, it strikes me that there's a paradox here. What we're essentially talking about is gradations of responsibility where you would you would expect someone to have an internal degree of freedom where they they could do otherwise and therefore they they would be even people like ourselves who who don't believe in free will we would acknowledge that there are people who are behaving in ways that that are not at all governed by volition so that you know you you can't discourage what they're doing based on punishment you know if someone has a, a tremor and you're going to tax them every time their hand moves. Their hand is still going to move because they, they, you know, in this particular kind of tremor, they can't control, say. So we'll acknowledge the difference between voluntary and involuntary behavior. And there's a, a spectrum of competence. You can only expect so much of a three-year-old or someone with Alzheimer's. But when you get to the, the most competent, the most potentially responsible, the people who really should be able to own the consequences of their behavior as much as possible, what I find is you land at a kind of moral mirage. I'll give you the, the example where this first occurred to me. So, And this is, came in an argument I had with Dan Dennett about free will. And there's a famous example that the philosopher Austin used of a missed putt. And you know Dan was using it for his nefarious purposes, trying to make a mockery of my account of free will. But there's something in this missed putt analogy that, that struck me as interesting. So you imagine a, a golfer of, of my precarious abilities missing a three-foot putt, and it really doesn't say too much about me or the world, or it doesn't leave you in a position to say that I, I really should have made that putt, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss a fair number of those putts. You'd expect if I took a thousand of those putts, I might miss you know, a full 30% of them, right? You know, so 300 putts I'm just going to miss. And so to say that I should have made it is really just to say, well, you know, you should try harder next time. You're like, this is, is, is aspirational, but you would, you know, it's, you're no one's surprised if I miss this putt. But if you take someone like Tiger Woods or whoever is the best golfer in the world at the moment, you know, he's going to make this putt more than 999 times out of a thousand, right? This is, this is a putt he really should make. He's the most competent to make it. So when he misses it, you would think that would trigger the most judgment, and it often does. I mean, it's, he hates himself for missing it, gets a big reaction out of him, people are astonished. But when you look more closely, his missing the putt says even less about him as a golfer than it does about me as a golfer, because he's going to make that putt virtually every time he takes it in the future. And so it, it's more anomalous. It says it, it's, it's something went wrong with the universe 
for him to miss that putt. I mean, there was some noise in his synapses that obviously he wasn't the author of. Admonishing him to try harder or to do better doesn't really make much sense. And so in the presence of the most responsible person, a failure to perform somehow means the least. And so when you map this onto the moral domain, you take the most scrupulous, saintly person. If that person starts downloading child pornography or lying to everyone, well, in that case, this person should seem the most culpable, right? This person is totally adequate to the moment morally, and this person has been impeccable his entire life. You know, this is, again, you fill in the space provided your moral exemplar here, whether it's Martin Luther King or Gandhi or the Buddha. You know, the Buddha starts downloading child pornography. Well, something has clearly gone wrong, right? This is a visitor to his life. He's the victim of something. This is not who he was yesterday. And so culpability seems to dissipate in the presence of the most competence. And I'm not quite sure how to think about that. I think that reflects a certain cultural mindset that I happen to share as well. Um, some of that is some of that is sort of the biological mindset that a lot of rational people in our world have been trained to think by now, which would be, wow, is he sick? Is there something wrong with him? Is there a, it's not him, it's his disease sort of statement. Um, but your assessment also has elements of a cultural view that accepts the possibility of human foibles. And extreme consistency nonetheless, having little hiccups now and then, and hey, we all make mistakes, and we're all human, and that sort of mindset. And it's one that accepts occasional shortcomings of people. On the other hand, there's plenty of other cultures that where who cares what he had done, he would instantly have been, you know, drawn and quartered. Part of, I think, our view with that is we've got a rather certain brand of Christianized belief that happens to like redemption a whole lot. And it's very exciting when someone has fallen to see themselves come clean and admit to it and climb back up again. And that's the like endless soap opera of various uh, televangelists who turn out to have feet of God knows what and then confess and they're forgiven. And that's a cycle that's very culturally appealing to us also. I think that's simply our mindset. But absolutely historically, I think there have been times and places, and probably still are, where even if it was the Buddha, um, he still would have been punished. Well, so, so we've been talking about bad people here, or, real, or, or unlucky people, if you drill down on the, the biological details. But I think most of human evil or, or human misbehavior is the result of bad ideas more than bad people. I mean, there are not that many bad people in the world. There are not that many people who are consciously doing evil. This is a, a point that goes all the way back to Plato. There are many people, however, who are doing what they imagine to be good. I mean, they have a, a righteous commitment to some cause, and yet they're spreading an immense amount of needless human misery as a consequence. And there are endless number of examples of this, but one of the most vivid in recent memory 
comes from something that I believe is called the Auschwitz album. Have you, did you ever see this album of photographs that was discovered in an attic? No. Um, you should Google this, or you know, when, when we're done, I will, I'll find it and I'll send you a link. But there was, I believe it's now in the Holocaust Museum in D.C., if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, but it was found a, you know, sometime in the last decade. And it took people a while to figure out what these photos were, because it was just, it, these are just photos of happy people you know, sunning themselves on a porch and, you know, eating blueberries, you know, by the bowlful and laughing and just men and women kind of in the prime of their life in, in these black and white photographs, just having a grand old time. And then based on some details or some further photos, it was discovered that these were actually the guards and staff at Auschwitz just on their leisure days in this chalet, which was basically under the plume of smoke of human ash coming out of the crematory of Auschwitz. I mean, this could not be more proximate. And these are the people who are gassing and and cremating women and children and, uh, you know, starving slave laborers by day. And yet, when you see these photos, it's, I'm not pretending to be omniscient here, but I, I think most people will sense that you can see into the lives of these people and I feel like it's safe to assume that not all of these people are psychopaths. In fact, I would guess that probably none of them are, and that they're, they are actually experiencing a range of conscious states that all of us are very familiar with. These, they really are having a good time. They really are happy to be eating blueberries. They're enjoying their social lives, and when they listen to Wagner, they, you know, they, they shed a tear. They have a life of aesthetic pleasure, and then they go gas more people the next day. And it's because they have a belief system that has segmented their world into, you know, moral in-group and out-group so decisively that they are basically unconflicted about what they're doing because the people they're killing are scarcely human. I think you, you share my concern about bad ideas being the piece of software that gets even psychologically normal people, biologically normal people, to do the unthinkable. How do you think about this in the context of your research now? You know, that's utterly haunting. And I agree that's at the heart of a huge percentage of our human miseries. As you say, it is a very rare person who will sit there and say, it is okay to do the following horrible, violent things. It's really fine. The vast majority of people will say, you know, it's not okay. It's not okay. But here's why I'm an exception. Here's why it's different for me. Here's why my special pains put me in a different category. Or the difference being virtually everyone would say it's, you know, it's terrible to do violent, horrible things to innocent people. And then you'll simply differ as to who counts as innocent or who counts as a them or who counts as having the same pain thresholds that you do. And I think that's absolutely where much of our misery comes from, our means of having a lot of shared values that nonetheless are always a bit context-dependent and having different contexts and having very personally convenient contexts in a lot of cases. When you think about the future here, I mean, just imagine we have something much more like a completed science of the mind and we can intervene more directly into 
brain function in ways that don't require neurosurgery, or that the interventions become so compelling and so safe once you do the surgery that more and more of us would even opt for neurosurgery, right? You can get into sci-fi here where we're integrated with the internet or with super intelligent AI, but what this opens is the possibility of actually altering our neurochemistry in such a way that our intuitions about right and wrong can be modified. So it's not only how do we track what we agree is good better than we can at present, you know, how can you become a better person than you are given the norms to which you currently pay lip service? We can actually modify our beliefs and intuitions about what is good. You could cease to find something objectionable that you currently find objectionable, or vice versa. And then the question is, you know, what sort of moral hardware should you have or, or should you want, given that it's on the table to be revised and revised by something more than a good education or good relationships or a change of cultures, but actually a direct intervention in the brain? What do you expect to happen in the next 50 years? And what, what is reasonable to hope for here? I mean, is this just all scary once you start pushing on that particular door? Or do you, do you actually see the last best hope of humanity in more direct intervention into our biology? Um, for one thing, right off the bat, sort of listeners who might view this as way far off, it is a lot closer than a lot of people would think. Um, stunningly interesting studies using this technique, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, where you could non-invasively change the activity of small clusters of cortical neurons in people exactly when you press the button, and you change people's moral decisions. You change people's level of generosity in economic games, and then you stop pressing the button, and they go back to where they were before mechanistic and exactly a harbinger of the sort of things that we'll be facing more and more down the line. I think what we will have to do with it is just continue sort of the acceptance that most of us already have at the means of manipulation already. Very few people think of having their morning cup of coffee as sort of neurochemical cognitive enhancement. Well, We've accepted by now, we don't think of that as an external factor that changes levels of attention and focus and where you can even identify which parts of the brain and which like molecules are dancing in what particular way. People with a history of chronic depression, when they are first finally medicated with something that works, when they're a week into their first experience with Prozac, if they've lucked out on that one, and they're transformed. And with that often comes this sort of crisis of, so wait a second, am I a different person now than I've been since adolescence? Or am I finally the person I was meant to be all along? And it's an existential crisis. But then once people come to terms with the fact that nonetheless, they feel better than they've had and done in decades, um, the existential crisis sort of gets reduced to a good term paper for a philosophy class. And you realize, thank God there are these meds and I'm going to keep taking them. I think we're going to have more and more of that along the way as we have interventions that can make us more empathic, that make us more responsive, that 
increase our sense of who counts as an us, things of that sort, we will immediately have crises of, wait, does this count as as good of an act? If it's not volitional, none of it's volitional. Um, is altruism not as altruistic as we think if there's hidden benefits? And you know, you're often having great arguments over the dorm dinner table. And I think what will mostly happen is we'll recognize this is very helpful stuff and let's just run with it. I certainly hope that's the direction things will go. As a kind of final topic where I think we agree about more or less everything, I want to touch your view on religion and its relationship to science, I mean, just the, the way in which those two foundations of a worldview are in tension. But now you have, a, you have a very different backstory than I do. You grew up in an actually an Orthodox family surrounded by religious people, and you, if I'm not mistaken, were intensely religious until you were something like 13, right? Yep, yep. What disabused you of your belief there? Did it just you, you just collided with a, a science textbook, or or what? What made it seem implausible? And what was the first thing that do you re, do you remember? What, what the, the first chink in the in the edifice? <laughs> yep, I I had a crisis of uh, rather than trying to make sense of biological determinism, uh, theistic determinism, the uh, the Exodus story. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And Moses brings a plague upon Pharaoh or Egypt. And Pharaoh says, okay, I give up. You can all go. And then, at least in the version that I was raised with, quote, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and made Pharaoh say, I changed my mind. Nobody's going anywhere. So now in comes the second plague. And Pharaoh says, I give up. And God intervenes again, and we at the end are asked not only to like judge Pharaoh, but as long as we're at it, killing like all the firstborns and the horses and whatever poor schmucks have been forced to be in the army running those chariots across the Red Sea. And whoa, justice has been served. Wait a second, but God interfered, but then God judges them, and the, and like whoa, that's very confusing. And then when I was thirteen, I. It's crystal clear. I remember one night waking up at like two in the morning and saying, ah, none of that makes sense. None of it's for real. It's nonsense. This, and I've been incapable of a, a, a shred of spirituality or religiosity since then. So did you communicate your doubts directly to your parents at that point or you kept them secret? What, what happened? What was the unraveling <laughs> like for you? Um, I was a very meek, mild, inexpressive, passive-aggressive kid. Um, so uh, my father, who was the driving force on the religiosity, uh, went to his grave, never knowing that I no longer believed. And, and how old were you when he died? <laughs> An adult. Interesting. Now, so when you say you've been incapable of any even spiritual intuition since. Did you have a, a psychedelic phase in your life? Have you ever perturbed your consciousness in ways that would give you a glimpse of what people are talking about when they say they have a spiritual experience? Um, no. And people are always intensely puzzled by this because I got a big beard. You've got the facial hair that suggests that you may have dropped acid a couple of times. Yeah, I got that. I got a ponytail. I wear Birkenstocks. I, I live in the hate in San Francisco and where it's like 
people like panhandlers recognize me, my credentials are in place. Um, not only have I never taken an illicit drug in my life, um, I've never taken a sip of alcohol in my life. I'm actually um, pretty <laughs> regimented and driven underneath this sort of like neo hippie exterior. So I've never experienced any of that. I have plenty of friends who have and have attempted to get me to over the decades, starting in high school. Um, but no, and I recognize the Northern California intelligentsia version of it is the people who say, of course, well, you know, I don't subscribe to any organized religion, but I'm a very spiritual person. I think of nature as personified, and I see nature and spirituality everywhere, and little fairy dust hops around everywhere and accounts for the good things in this world. And, you know, <laughs> I'd love to be able to believe that and take comfort from that. I'm utterly hard-nosed materialist and incapable of anything else. And again, my my psychic life and my affective life would sure be a lot easier if I were capable, uh, but I'm not. Interesting. So now it sounds like you must have made a firm decision at some point not to try any of these substances, I mean, even alcohol. When did that happen and, and, and what informed it? Well, a little bit of being biologically trained and knowing that's not a great thing for one's nervous system, but this was a decision like early on in high school amid everybody else going that route. Although isn't the research on that somewhat equivocal now? I mean, isn't there some research that suggests that there's a protective effect against dementia and now speaking in particular about alcohol and mortality? There seems to be a reduction in mortality. I don't know which of these studies to trust, and it's been a long time since I've looked at this research, but you know, I'm sure some of them have been funded by Anheuser-Busch. Or, <laughs> but my understanding is that at least there's some data that moderate alcohol use is correlated with a decline of mortality across the board, and there's some potential neuroprotective effect in moderation. Do you, I can't imagine you're so interested in that given that you're, it's not a part of your life, but do you know anything about that? Yeah, grudgingly, I'm forced to say that there does seem to be some evidence for it. Um, my guess is half a dozen push-ups a day like, are, mm -hmm. are equivalent in their protective effects. I, like you, I haven't followed that literature closely, um, but it does seem a little bit valid. Nonetheless, this is something like that has never crossed my lips or my nasal cavity or my bloodstream. So you decided at some point that it was the healthiest thing you could do to just not take any of these things. Is there more to it than that? Is there was there any kind of holdover from your religious upbringing, or because I, you know, this is something that I have, you know, obviously I've charted a different course here. And I'm probably worse the wear because of it. <laughs> but you know, you know, I've tried. I certainly haven't tried everything, but I've tried many things. If I map that resolution onto myself, it would have required some belief that moving from zero to one on any of these substances is just something that I have to have good. Re I have a good reason not to do and <laughs> never to reconsider. Well, I'm I'm sort of vacillating here, but since I'm sitting here in an empty room just chatting with you, and it feels very <laughs> personable here, and I, I certainly can't imagine anybody else would ever listen to this. Um, basic reason is uh, since early adolescence, I've had 
lifelong and some pretty severe problems with major depression. And what was made clear to me by all sorts of wise professionals around then that I amply agreed with was my neurochemistry was screwed up enough that I really didn't want to like screw around with it further. Um, it was, it was fragile enough. So just as well, not, uh, not add something to the, <laughs> the not very functional mix. So now have you found a way to mitigate the depression with, you know, pharmacologically or otherwise? Is that, is it under control or is it a continuous struggle? It's manageable with a lot of very good professional help, including pharmacology. Um, and there's probably no realm in which I more readily get up on some sort of soapbox about biological roots of behavior. It's a biochemical disorder. It's some screwy genes. It's some screwy early experience that synergistically does you in coupled with the genes. It's screwed up neurotransmitters. It's as biochemical of a disorder as is diabetes. And it's very hard to accept that and for people to, and it's far easier to decide that, hey, I know how to work hard or I was very disciplined at this. I, I have a lot of gumption and backbone. I should be able to overcome that. Come on, pull yourself together. It's a biological disorder. And I tell that to people endlessly. And sometimes I even pay attention to when I'm telling people that. For any of our listeners who are dealing with this or have a, a member of their family who is dealing with it, do you have any advice, I mean, any, any memes you think they should ream out of their heads? It sounds like you, you just did that to a couple or, anything, or any resources you think they should seek out before others. Okay, going into preacherly mode here, amid there being lots of reasons where uh, a lot of the meds are abused, overprescribed, used for the wrong reasons, used as a crutch, used for blah, blah, military, industrial, pharmacological complex, be on your guard, et cetera, et cetera. An untreated major depression is one of the most life-threatening diseases out there. Um, as another thing to emphasize in there, in terms of its biological roots, you don't sit somebody down who has diabetes and say, oh, come on, what's with this insulin stuff? Stop babying yourself, pull yourself together. Um, whether it's you or whether it's a loved one dealing with the likes of something like major depression, it's a biological phenomenon. You don't tell people, come on, heal your broken bone faster. Let's see some discipline and backbone here. Are there any books you recommend here? There have been some great books on depression that it's been a while since I've read them, but I remember William Styron's book, Darkness Visible, is a very short window onto this experience of, of, of having a major depressive episode. And Andrew Solomon wrote a book, uh, The Noonday Demon, which was, I remember being great. Is there anything you um, recommend to people? Uh, those, in fact, are two of my favorites in that regard. Um, I mean, couple that with <laughs> reading some of the websites put up by the places, the likes of National Institute of Mental Health and stuff, of trying to instead get from a scientific, from a biological perspective, to get people to recognize this is a disease, this is biology, this is not a problem with willpower. Well, Robert, I'm, I'm mindful of our time now, and so I'm going to give you a final question, a big picture question that 
I don't think I've asked of anyone yet. <laughs> this seems to be in your wheelhouse. If you could come back in a thousand years, assuming our descendants survive, what do you think you'd see? Will we be recognizably human? How much are we going to take the reins of genetic engineering and anything else, you know, integrating ourselves with machines? What will we become and, and what is reasonable to hope for here? Um, I suspect we will be technologically unrecognizable to our present selves much as our present selves are technologically unrecognizable to our past selves. My God, you take a human from 20,000 years ago and you look at the fact that people who have like sufficiently bad eyesight that they would get eaten by a predator in two seconds are around just fine because of the technology of eyeglasses. I like benefit from that. And that our teeth don't fall out and, oh my God, we can go get our hip replaced. A hip that's like even stuff that like you wouldn't see until like somebody's 20,000-year-old carcass would rot away. Yeah, we're technologically transformed now and we're still recognizably human uh, to ourselves. And I think in all the important ways with anyone from the past, my hopeful notion is there'll just be more of that. Uh, brain-machine interfaces are going to go in directions we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, genetic manipulations as well. I hope the continuity will still be there and be uh, the stronger thing at the end of the day than the differences. It'll take a significant breakthrough in science in the next few years for us to stay around to, to witness it. So <laughs> yes. I'm going to have to have Aubrey de Grey on, on the <laughs> podcast to tell us how that's going to be accomplished. Another man with an impressive beard. Yes, yes I greatly admire his. I, I aspire to it, in fact. <laughs> well, listen, Robert, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad we finally connected. Likewise, it's rare to get to talk to somebody at length who like agrees with all the things that you think about the universe. It's a real pleasure. Well, to be continued. <laughs>